Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan on News Talk. Was listening to this study out this morning from Maynooth University. One in four of us living here in Ireland, like nearly one million people, grew up in a house or lived with a problem drinker as a child. This is the, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study. They found significant association between post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and also having a problem drinker in the home. And like really it highlights the population's high level of alcohol use as a, a likely contributor. But I just thought like it's such a high figure. One in four people in this country. Um, I want to talk to people about this today, about the, the impact of it now, maybe looking back on your early childhood. Marion, I mentioned at the start of the show today that we were going to, to chat about this. Is it something that you grew up with? It is, Andrea, and thanks for, for having us on uh, to represent mm. the campaign this week called End the Silence. Yes, it is something I grew up with um, from the age of three. Um, and then um, my parent, my, my my dad went into treatment when I was 15. But from three to 15, his drinking progressed into a very chronic stage by the age of 15. So the fact that a problem drinker in the home is not something that's static, but it actually progresses over the years and it progresses into illness. And for many people, they lose a parent prematurely from death due to an alcohol-related um, illness. So, yeah, I grew up with it and um, I was unaware of, of, of it because it wasn't discussed. And that's one of the big things is don't talk about it because, you know, um, it's just not the right thing to do. Was it, um, was just it, accept. Was, sorry to cut across mm-hmm. you, Marion. For, for you as a child, I know not maybe at, at three and four years of age, but... Mm-hmm. Did it become? When did it become apparent to you, or what did you notice well, as a child? It, well, well, what I, I did notice was was definitely in relation to um, you know drunkenness and my my dad coming home at different levels of of drunkenness. So I've often described you know his car driving into our yard and you know, getting a sense that, the, that he was slowing, uh, driving, slow driving in and then very slow putting the key in the door. And that, and immediately my anxiety would rise to off the Richter scale because I knew that, um, you know, he wasn't going to be going uh, to, to, be, to bed quickly. He was going to be up and about and perhaps turning on music or whatever like that, or maybe had some friends back from the pub with him. So those kind of um, patterns were there all through my childhood. I do remember being at my own bedroom door with the door slightly open, listening in the cold. I remembered that distinctly and just very anxious and worried in case, um, you know, my 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 mom would be wakened up or um, other siblings. So I kind of took on the role of, of a, being very hypervigilant of what was happening in the home and um and then would breathe a sigh of relief when i would hear him go to go to go to bed and people leaving so all of those and it used to surprise me that you know my, my dad was unaware of, of of what he was doing but of course he was because he was in a drunk a drunken state mm-hmm. and you know and and these are the kind of scenarios that children have to live with the noise of it and being wakened up and when i think of all those children who who 
like myself, had to go to school despite being awake maybe a couple of hours during the night um, and also maybe hearing noise such and maybe food being cooked and smells, of, you know, frying food or all of that sort of thing um, brought home the, the, the reality that, you know, this was something outside of our control. We couldn't talk about it the next day because everything would be cleared up when you come back from school. It was like, you know, as if nothing had happened the previous night. So those are the kind of scenarios that children are faced with. And hence, um, as a co-founder of, of Violent Voices, myself and two, two of my colleagues, Barbara Whelan and Carl Fawcett, we decided that we had to, to, to begin to talk about this because okay. um, the fact that one in six children in this country are living with it and the fact that, like, I'm one of 400,000 adult children who have lived with it and who carry the trauma with us through. Now, thankfully, many of us have, have worked through that and uh, can can um, discuss it in depth today, mm. but really thinking of, of so many others who have That's not had that opportunity. I, I mean, when you talk about yeah. one in four, like you don't have to look too hard when you look at most households on, on every street to find four or five people living, you know, under the, the one roof or in the one house. And I mean, like if, if these the stats that are we're looking at today, it's it's an incredible, incredible amount of, of people, Marion. Ashling is on the line too, Marion. Stay with us. I just want to bring in um, Ashling Cregan because Ashling, you, you published a book, I Am Someone, about your experience um, growing up with, with alcoholic parents. Like, how did this impact you? I did, Andrea. And again, first of all, just thank you for having me on your show again. Um, I wrote the book, I Am Someone, in 2000. Sorry, I published it in 2022. And I wrote the book to open up the discussion on the direct impact of alcoholism on children, right down to the cellular level. I was the youngest of a large Dublin family, and I was raised by two alcoholics in a very chaotic household. My father, as a result, died when I was 10 years of age. Now, it's a story of resilience and survival. And and I, I wrote it to also help GPs, social workers, teachers, and anyone working in the mental health field as to give them clues as to what to look out for in children and adults who've been affected yeah. by growing up in a home with alcoholics. Now, it's not a victim. That's, that was the one thing I, I really wanted to make sure when I was writing the book was, you know, to make sure that I wasn't a victim or a blame book. But it also touches on my own mother's story and how her traumatic experience affected her mental health and spiral into alcoholism. I, I would have been born to quickly becoming an adult. Um, you know, there just was no room for childish ways. The focus was basically on staying alive to the next day due to the violence in the house. But the constant fear of threat was brittle. Um, I mean, I was diagnosed as mentally retarded, as they called it in the 1970s, at nine years of age. Um, I was also right. dyslexic. Now, there was nothing mentally wrong with me. I was just... traumatized. I was just exhausted from the unpredictability in the house. And, and felt constantly shell-shocked, I suppose that's the only way I can describe it. Um, school, while I missed a lot of it, was a huge refuge. There was a routine in school. There was no surprises. Um, 
and actually the intervention by a remedial teacher actually saved my life. Um, I was about 10 years of age and it wasn't even the content of the sessions, but it was the fact that this teacher was there for me at this particular time on a particular day, week after week. Mm -hmm. And it installed a a trust in adults again, a belief um, that trust is possible. Um, and, you know, when people take the courage to open up to to family, they're often told, I've got six, sure, sure, aren't you grand now? Sure, you look grand and sure, having a job and sure, mm. you have a house and sure, that was in the past, sure, look, move on. But as a society, particularly in Ireland, I think we tend to, we brush this stuff under the carpet and we need to stop doing that. Um, you know, we need to talk about this more and get rid of that stigma, I suppose, and people deserve mm. to be listened to. You know, I mean, counselling is fantastic. It gives you the tools to survive and to manage. Absolutely. But it affects you and generational. It affects you. For, it affects the family for generations until somebody throws in that spanner and says, you know what, enough. We need to we need to talk about this. Rosie is on the line as well, Ashling. Stay with me if you don't mind, because Rosie, you've been listening to Ashling and, and Marion and, and you got in touch. What's your story? Hi, Andrea. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, first of all, I'd like to say to Marion and um, Ashling, on behalf of um, people like myself, I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I just want to apologise the fact that you guys had to go through that. Um, now, listening to your stories, if this was two years ago, I probably felt would have felt such shame that I would have picked up a drink. Um, however, I'm in recovery now for almost nine, uh, almost 17 months. Um, okay. 18 months, sorry. Um, my story, um, and I say it now with pride rather than shame. Um, I just feel so sorry for those ladies who had to go through that. Um, and to say that, when I was in the depths of my alcoholism, I was using it as a painkiller, as people do. Um, I had had a few years where my daughter, my, I have three daughters. My eldest daughter was seriously bullied in school and she was attacked outside of the home and stalked. And it was a horrific time, but I got her through that. Now, she was three years kind of in and out of hospital because of it with anxiety. At this point, I was a social drinker. I'd always been a social drinker. Um, I always associated having a few drinks with my friends as having a good time. There was never a problem. Um, and then after this, after my daughter was ill, then I have twins as well, twin girls, and they started self-harming. So then <laughs> we, we seemed to get through that and everybody in the house was um, very good. My eldest daughter, who had been bullied, met a nice guy and um, she had a little boy. And when she was seven months pregnant, um, her partner left her for somebody else. Um, so she's a two-year-old and she was seven months pregnant. So she moved back in with us. Now, this was all around the time of COVID. So we were all coping, I suppose, as best we could. There was a lot going on. But well, there was. And what I found was in COVID, like I'd always kept myself decent because I always, I'm a very busy person. I'm 
highly motivated, very self-driven, had always worked. And suddenly I was kind of, you know, at this place where things should have been better. And they weren't because it was like a holiday in Ireland. Everybody was like, oh, we'll sit out and have a glass of wine. And it was like, yeah, and, and the, you know, it was a beautiful mm. summer. I remember when I go up to the um, supermarket in the evenings, I would put a bottle of wine in the soup in my um, in my basket. But I would always check around to see who else was doing it. And I, I realized everybody else was doing it. Every mother, every friend I knew, they were all putting the bottles of wine in the basket. So coming home, because there was no ro- routine, I found myself drinking for enjoyment. Um, now, around the same time, just as life had settled, um, we were renting, um, sorry, just after my daughter um, had, had split from her partner, I had gone back to college and I was in a great place. I was very happy, very um, satisfied with my life. Um, and then, as I said, COVID came along. But um, at the same time, then um, my best friend, who was my soulmate, um, was diagnosed with leukemia at 55 and he died within a few months. And then the final thing that absolutely pushed me over the edge, and I hope, ladies, um, I'm I'm not trying to make excuses. Um, and I've had to listen to my daughters tell me what their experience of yeah, drinking yeah. has been. Um, but um, we were renting, we have a little house here on the property, and we were renting it to people that my my twin daughters had become friendly with now they were older it was a couple and they had um a small child of two so because we all shared the same property we'd all be on lockdown together so my friend um, sorry my daughters started going over to their house and having a couple of drinks and all that and to make a long story short um this couple with another another man raped one of my daughters um and we had to, as I said, we shared the same driveway. We would see them every day. And because there was a ban on evicting people, we couldn't get them out. Um, my daughter didn't want to report the rape. Um, so for six months, we watched them. Oh, Rosie, had- I'm so sorry for you. You've, you've, God, you've had, Rosie, such an incredible no. time. No, but like people go through worse things. I know they do and they don't drink. Um, my, I was so, I felt I had no control over my life, over what had happened to the, you know, to my daughters that they'd been through so much. And um, I had to watch these people. They did everything but burn the house down. They broke everything in there. We'd see them every day and another piece of furniture would be broken outside. And okay. it just became really horrific. So I eventually got them out. Okay. And, How is um, your daughter, Rosie? My daughter is great, thank God. Um, she's a great lady. Um, it complicates things because she's a twin, you know, um, because it was like my her sister went through it with her nearly um but she's in a good place okay. now now i went i you i would 
I know, sorry. I, I'm sorry to cut across you, Rosie, for a moment. I, I, I know part of the reason, you know, you, know, you were listening to Marion and, and Ashling, um, yeah. and part of the reason you wanted to get in touch today was, as you say, you know, to, aside from talking about everything you've gone through, but it was also, I suppose, a, a story for you personally of hope, if that's the right word, or coming to terms and, and, and taking control of your, um, your own behaviour. Yes, I ha- I had known for a while that I was using drink as a painkiller. Every time I poured a glass of wine, I hated myself more. The the depth of shame I felt, um, like I didn't want to live. You know, I absolutely didn't. But what I selfishly or didn't have the capacity to realise at the time, that I was only bringing more worry to my family. Now, I was a highly functioning, do you know what I mean? So everything, you know, we live in a clean house, there was never arguments, everything was done, you know, but they would have known that something was wrong. And it was only when I became very ill, um, I collapsed, I had seizures, um, and I, I almost died in hospital. And it was, and I was in a ward with five other men, you know, which was strange because, you know, I don't have any male friends and they were all in there in there for different things. But that was my five days um, when I was detoxing okay. as well to look at my life and to realize that alcoholism, it's not about drink. It's about a mindset. And I had to I had to come away and slowly but surely really, really look at myself in the mirror and know the damage that I had done to my own children because they would have been worried about me because I had always coped, I'd always managed, Mm. I'd always been there for them. And I just, you know, I have spoken to them since. I wasn't able in the beginning. And also I had to find, now I did go to counselling and I had to, I had to feel the shame and admit the shame. Okay. And I, I, Marion, you're you're you've been listening to to Rosie as well, um, and that was one of the things you mentioned at the very start of all of this. Like it, it's extremely difficult for people to share their story, but I suppose a lot of it for you is about getting people to talk about it. Yes, um, and and just being aware as well that we're talking about children and there are so many children under the age of 18 who are going through this at the moment and the importance for them of finding some source of place where they can talk about it and because it really is extremely difficult. But we would encourage people to, to um, contact Childline if anybody under 18 is listening because uh, the Childline... Um, number will 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 certainly um, be open to listening um with regard to adults um i think it's a lifelong journey i certainly experience it as a lifelong journey um the the recovery um R- rosie talks about r- recovery and it's wonderful to hear that you know you have sought that recovery in the last 17 months it really is is, is such a difference to your family members because the safety and security can return and that's what happened myself when I was when I was 15. My 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 father went into into treatment, and and joined AA. But the the wonderful thing was 
my 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 mum um, joined Al-Anon. And I think that's what a message I'd love to, for people to hear is that where there is a problem in the family that the other parents now, I, I you know, we, I've, I've heard um, mention of, of, you know, when there are two parents who, who are addicted, it's extremely difficult because there's almost no no space or no adult who, who you can talk to at all. But certainly if there is one parent that is not drinking to excess, they can get help through Al-Anon. And I think the benefit for us as a family of, of my mum being in Al-Anon over many years um, was just enormous. And and it, it filtered down to, you know, us as siblings um, being able to develop a philosophy of life about Accept the things you cannot change. Courage to change the things that you can, and the things I can change are to mind my own mental health, to um, find a trusted adult that I can talk yeah. to, okay. and and really express all of what's inside because it, it, that is what is completely suppressed in childhood: is the inability to talk. There's no talking, there's no trusting, mm. and there's no feeling. You know, and it's when you're in adulthood that that you you know you can begin to express, but it's very very painful, especially at that eighteen yeah. to twenty five years of age. Around those years, okay. it's extremely difficult because the reality of the childhood is 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 very very stark, well, then, and you have to work through it. St- stay with us if you don't mind, um, Marion, because quite a number of other people want to to talk and to just tell their stories as well. We're talking about this Maynooth University study today. A quarter of adults in Ireland, about the guts of one million people, lived with a problem drinker as a child. Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Weekdays at midday on News Talk. We were talking about living at home as a child with a problem drinker because new research from Maynooth University out today tells us that one in four of us have lived with a problem drinker as a young child and we've been listening to some just really incredible stories and harrowing experiences from Rosie and Ashling and, and Marion as well, who's still with us on the line. Nikki, you were listening to the ladies there a few moments ago. You got in touch. Have you experienced this? Um, yeah, I have. Um, so I grew up in Scotland, so um, not Ireland, but yeah, still grew up with a problem drinker. Um, <clears throat> so my mother uh, was an alcoholic. She would admit she was an alcoholic. Uh, as far as she was concerned, because there would be days where she didn't have alcohol and she didn't drink every day, um, she wasn't an alcoholic, even though as soon as she had money, she would buy alcohol. Um, I was an only child and she was a single parent. Um, and sometimes she lost jobs because of her her alcoholism. Um, but it made me grow up quicker uh, than like my peers. Um, the best example I can give of this is, uh, so my mother had a, a council house that was run by the local authority and she ended up in arrears and she wouldn't deal with it. I had to go to the housing authority office that was not far from my home um, at the age of 13 and sit down with the person and be like, my mother's not coming, you need to talk to me about this. Um, and they're like, what do you mean she's not coming? I'm like, she's not going to come. You've sent the letters out. Um, she's not coming. I'm here to deal with this. Um, I had to budget, do grocery shopping, like the household grocery shopping. Um, not just like, oh, go get a loaf of bread from the shop. It was like, go buy all the shopping. 
Um, Mind in the house, Nikki. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it got to a stage where, like, I was in high school. Um, I was a very good student, thankfully. It didn't affect my grades in, in school and things like that. But she would want me to drink with her. Um, so by the time I was in college, I could drink a lot of alcohol and not be drunk, if that makes sense. Like, could consume it and still have my, like, senses. Um, and my college at the time was running a come talk to us about alcohol day. And I remember going to the, the person and like, how much do you drink on a night out? Um, and because I would go out with like, friends and stuff like this, and I wouldn't tell mm. my friends that, hey, by the way, my mother is an alcoholic. Um, the the person running it was a nurse, and she's like, if you keep drinking like this, you're going to damage your liver. Um, and that sort of woke me up. And I was only like 18 at the time when this when that conversation happened. Um, fast forward to now, and I'm, I'm 32, I barely drink. I don't um, pose anyone having a drink. And if I'm at a wedding or a celebration, I'll have like a glass of champagne. But I don't actively go and seek it out, if that makes any sense. Um, but when I got together with my husband, um, I, I told him because I was like, my mother's an alcoholic. Um, and we'd been dating for about six months. And he turned around to me and said, I'll, I'll make your promise. I'll make you two things. Because I, I remember telling him, hey, by the way, my mother was like this and telling him the rent story. And he said, I'll make you two promises. I'll always keep food in your tummy and a roof over your head. And he's always kept that promise. Um, he's a lovely partner. But even now, even if we have a disagreement, because my mother, um, with her alcoholism, like she would have temper, her temper would flare at the slightest thing, and she'd shout. If we have a disagreement, which is rare, I just shut down emotionally. Like I go quiet, I don't engage. From the years of trauma of how my mother was, um, and that makes it difficult. Like when we're having like a conversation, and I just don't agree with something, or. Um, or it's a bit more like passionate conversations. We don't really have those that we generally are in agreement about things. But if it is a, like a disagreement, I, I shut down. And it takes a while for me to talk and to engage again in the conversation, yeah. um, which is really hard. Um, but I'm happy mother of three now. Um, yeah. And that sort of woke me up to the choices my mother made and the choices I don't want to make. What was your relationship like, Nikki, with your your mum in your teenage years? Um, terrible, if I'm honest. Like we didn't get along. Like there would some there would be like days that we wouldn't talk to one another because I'd say the smallest thing it would turn into an argument. Um, and I just didn't want to argue, so I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't engage. Um, the my mother. Um, when she was angry, would become uh, violent, which made things worse. Um, and I, I, I tolerated it and, and would just go to my room and ignore her for the most part, if I'm perfectly honest. Um, as I got older and then I met my partner and we moved in together, our relationship um, wasn't really, it was non-existent almost, to be honest. Um, like I tried, like I, my partner was very supportive, uh, my husband, um, he, he would try and engage and try and like, get us together and have a conversation, even, not even in the house, like out somewhere. Um, and I tried this for years before I gave up and was like, we don't, we don't have a relationship anymore. Like, I, I can't, I can't keep putting myself, um, in emotional harm 
like because it was basically self harm any time ago and like go see her. It would be it would be harmful. It would never be a pleasant like oh it's nice to see you and have a happy time. Mm. It would always be like hard and difficult and not even just hard and difficult because that would be fine but horrible. There would be horrible comments. There would be like she didn't really like my husband very much. Um. Like when I was very happy and told her, "Hey, we we're engaged." Um, a few days after it happened, um, she wasn't the first person I told. Right. Uh, she was like, "You shouldn't marry him. He won't make you happy." Um, and she didn't like it. She didn't like that I was happy in life. She was because she wasn't happy. I couldn't be happy. If that makes any sense. Um, me and my husband, we've been together for twelve years, married for eight years, very happy. Um, she was very wrong in her assertions, but. She didn't see it that way. She later on passed um, okay. the heart complications from alcoholism. From alcoholism. The alcohol had done a number on her body that her heart just couldn't take it anymore. Um, she had a stroke when I was like four years old because of alcoholism. Um, but the alcoholism was like killing her slowly and she refused to admit that she had a problem. And for much of your teenage life, you know, Nikki, like even for just at 13 years of age when you're sitting in front of the council and the local authority and the housing department talking about yeah. your home being in arrears. The, I mean, the, the person the person across from me that day, I remember clearly she was like, we can't talk to you about this, you're not an adult. And when I was like, my mother is not coming, you don't understand. And I explained it to her how it was. She was like, oh, we have to talk to you then. I was like, yeah, you have to talk to me. Marion is still with us, Nikki, on the line, because Marion, I know, you know, in a professional capacity, this is the, the area that's, that you work in as well. But like the impact of all of this on Nikki has been obviously, you know, extremely difficult mm-hmm. throughout her, her childhood. Yeah, I mean, Nikki is is, is really describing a, a very, very, um, you know, uh, conflictual and, and painful um Results from from her mum's drinking, and you know the behavioural emotional difficulties that come from it, um, are are lived with by by us as children, and you know we become parents before our time, and we're worried and anxious about the parent and Nikki taking that responsibility um, with the council to talk to 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 the officials. You know, it just goes to show, and there are so many examples like that. I mean, I know myself that I was constantly concerned and worried about my mum. I was always picking up um, expressions on her face as to how she was, because as soon as I saw her okay, I could be okay. So um, in in all of this, I I recognise over the years the the underdeveloped sense of self that that as children growing up with this issue, we experience. And as a result, you know, there's a kind of an empty, there can be an emptiness and a sense of, oh, if, you know, if, if, if I, if I am to change, how can I go about changing? Mm. Now, Nikki describes a very positive experience um, uh, further on, but there are many who are drift, drift into homelessness and, you know, we, um, it was in webinar this morning with Alcohol Ireland.ie on this issue, and Professor Spratt from Trinity was talking about people who are homeless and often have come from this very traumatic background with nobody to listen or to understand or even to 
recognize that this is is an issue for people from a mental health perspective. Yeah. But um, I think the domestic violence piece as well is um, is very very important because okay. the mix of d- domestic violence, mental health, and substance use is is just. Combined uh, too frequently as well. Nikki, thank you for for getting in touch today um, and sharing your your experience with us. Like it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I know there's lots more emails from people coming in with similar stories that just maybe don't want to talk on air. But um, certainly some have said they they get some comfort from sitting down even at the the laptop this afternoon and actually just sharing their story as well. Uh, For more information, obviously, the, um, the AA. Um, you'll be able to get details there too and I know Marion mentioned the child line number as well the free phone is 1800 666 Nikki thank you for, for getting in contact and um, Marion as well is the co-founder there of Silent Voices and also an addiction counsellor and psychotherapist Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan weekdays at midday on News Talk.